You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Well, hey, everyone. Welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities. We hope you've been enjoying our uh, recording that's still going on during uh, what have been easing restrictions. I mean, we're, we we can travel now if we needed to. We're just kind of given a little extra time to be cautious. And uh, Yeah, but, but we, hopefully I'll be back there soon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because it, it is a lot more fun, I think, when we're in the same room. But... Um, <laughs> You know, I, it's easier. <laughs> it is, and you know, it's what's funny is, uh, you and I were talking about this the other day. We were talking about the show, uh, just in general. I, I'm not going to take up too much time with this, but uh, we, we were talking about how when we first started, we would kind of banter about random things at the beginning, and then uh, we kind of dropped that, and we, we were thinking about it, and it's like, well, no, this is just what we talk about. There'll be times when we'll call each other and just talk about Bible stuff, and uh, I'll get off the the phone, and Mickey. My wife will ask, so how's Emily? I'm like, I don't know. I guess she's fine. That's true. <laughs> so, so if it seems like we're just jumping straight into the Bible conversation sometimes, that's, that's just what us. we do. <laughs> like we don't. Well, it's funny because your wife asks you and then mom will ask me, well, how are Nathan and Mickey and the girls? And I'm like. Got me. <laughs> I know what he thinks about, you know, Leviticus 12, but I don't know what he thinks about anything else. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but that just occurred to me that if anyone uh, thinks that we're being rude to each other and just bypassing what's going on in our lives, it's not that. This is just who we are. Yeah. Well, honestly, what's in the Bible is way more fascinating than what's going on in our worlds most of the time. So That's true. I, you know, mean... <laughs> I did some weed eating this week. That's fun. So, you know. Yeah. I so, wrote notes for the show, so you know this is what I've been doing. <laughs> exactly. So, well, let's get to those notes. Um, we are uh, in First Samuel chapter sixteen, and we are introducing um, David. We're getting to, yeah, we're getting to meet David. We've been waiting for him ever since you know Samuel told Saul that God was going to send a king, somebody who's after God's own heart, and you know going to give the 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 throne to Saul's neighbor who is better than him. And what I find really interesting about this, this chapter is even though it's about the kingdom and kingship and all the political uh, events that are going to shape Israel as a nation, the, the writer doesn't care. The, the writer is really, really focused on the individual and about the personal lives of Saul and, and David. And he spends a lot of time contrasting those and really forcing you to look at their character and not so much with David, the character, as it is God's favor and how God's interaction with these individuals is what sets them apart. And mm -hmm. this this chapter, I, I don't even know how many episodes we're going to have on it because I've got massive notes just on the text alone. And then I have a supplemental text that I'm going to bring in that's going to talk about music. And then the the folks at the paddle store helped me write another section <laughs> that uh, deals with aspects of this this chapter that that they wanted addressed. And so another reason why you want to be a part of the paddle store, by the way, so you can uh, make sure you like you know you get to impact and influence the show 
So, um, yeah, and I really have enjoyed uh, how much uh, more lively everyone's been there lately. I feel like we've all kind of got a chance to know each <laughs> other, and and uh, I think people are seeing that it is a place where we can talk without just arguing and tearing each other down all the time. So I really yeah. appreciate that. So And we still have a diversity of views represented. And mm -hmm. we've got so many denominations and we have new believers. We have old believers. We have people who've worked on massive Bible projects that, you know, that I use and consult with that by major publica publica publications. Publishers. Publishers. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, okay. Publishers. Yeah. That's the word I'm looking for. And uh, then, you know, we've got some other writers in there who are just, they're just amazing. So, um, you know, and plus, you know, everybody from Raven Creek who who's involved in making a podcast. And so, you know, yeah, that's that's a, a good reason to join. But uh, but in, in this chapter, uh, we've got a lot of minutia. We've got a lot of details and um, we're going to try to explain why some of that is so important. So we're just going to jump into verse one. I'm going to read it. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. That's a fun word. <laughs> for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So again, how long are you going to grieve? Samuel's really, he's been shaken by this entire situation. Uh, he, he hurts for, for Saul. He hurts for himself. He hurts for God. And, you know, he, he, we know in verse, in chapter 15, verse 10, you know, Samuel was angry and he cried to God all night. And there's never a rebuke for his emotional response. God lets him have it. But then there, there's this moment where God says, okay, you, you've wallowed long enough. Now it's time to, to get on with business. Mm -hmm. We, we can't indulge in emotion forever. And, you know, that's, that's one of the things that we find in the scripture. God allows us that that season where where emotions are valid and they're the perfectly appropriate response to whatever's going on. Yep. But at the end of that time, you get up and you go about your business. You do what you've been told to do. And I I think too that part of this could be God's way of saying your grief is focused on the wrong thing. That it, it's time to change your focus because I don't think at this point Samuel's really grieving for for Saul. Because, you know, it's a done deal. And there's some of that in there. But I think that, again, like I talked about last week, that there's this idea that is he, as a prophet, as a seer, as a roe, was his vision correct? And I, I say that because as we go through this, Samuel's vision and God's vision are going to be two major elements of the story. And it's, you know, where they converge and how they contrast. And so um, whatever... Samuel's um, reasoning for for grieving. God's ready to move on. He he's ready to to take it to the next level, and so he tells Samuel, "Go and fill your horn." So hope for the nation isn't lost, but if Samuel's going to be a part of this next phase of the nation of Israel, he has to act. And yeah. so every everything about this anointing is going to be different from Saul's. And there's some really great contrast, but if you read this without knowing Saul's story, you aren't going to catch it. So this is again, context, context, context. I'm, I'm never going to quit saying that. So first of all, Samuel's going to go to David. That's what God tells him to do. Remember, Saul came to Samuel 
Mm-hmm. And so there's our first point of, of contrast. Uh, Saul was looking for the livestock that were lost from his father's flock. He's looking for those donkeys. Well, you know, when we find David, where is he? He's actually attending his father's sheep. He, he's a good shepherd. Uh, Saul's the obvious candidate. David is obscure. He's kind of hidden. He, he doesn't make a lot of sense. And we're going to talk about why that is. Saul is anointed with a flask. David is anointed with a horn. Mm-hmm. And so this, this language, even here in this first verse, we're, we're being set up. Be paying attention. Look for those contrasts. Look for those differences. And the, the horn is significant because it is a symbol of authority and power. A, a flask, I mean, even today, if I talk about a flask, I'm thinking about something that a hobo has in his pocket. You know, I, I'm not thinking about uh, something that is you know, majestic or connotes authority and, and, and power, it, it, it kind of almost has in, in our uh, culture, almost kind of an underhanded, devious nature to it, that it's, it's hidden. So uh, that, that kind of, I think it carries over into the text. But notice God doesn't name David just yet. The name is being withheld. And the writer is very clever in this because He's going to withhold the name until the very end. And we'll see that when there's this kind of this revelation, you know, pulling back the curtain and, and throwing back the, the veil to see who is this person that is going to be revealed. Now, Jesse is the grandson of Boaz and Ruth. Mm-hmm. And um, if you remember back with Boaz and Ruth, uh, Bethlehem was the city where they lived. So, so Jesse has stayed in the place where his family of origin is from, which remember back in Judges, wondering about not being where you're supposed to be, where God has put your, put your tribe to dwell. That's a bad thing. So Jesse, even in this statement, we're already seeing Jesse is a man who's faithful. He's obedient. And so there's a little revelation of his character that, again, if you don't understand the context, you're going to miss. And he also has another great qualifier. He's from the tribe of Judah. Yep. So, you know, we're back in Genesis 48, where Jacob blesses Judah and says that he's going to be the one with authority. But notice there's something else going on here. Because if you remember, Saul's family is the result of a sex scandal. Right. Either his mother or his grandmother was one of the 600 women who were raped at the end of the book of Judges. Right. Jesse, his family is the result of a sex scandal. Mm-hmm. But the reversal here is where Saul's grandmother or mother was raped, Ruth actually pursued her husband. So very interesting contrast right off the start. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is quite the... Uh... The opposite way of doing things, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it, it really is. And but because of this story, Saul's actually, even though there's a, been a sexual violence within his family, he's pure Israelite stock. His bloodlines are good. Mm-hmm. David's aren't. Right. David is mixed. He he he's got Israelite and Moabite. Right there is reason to exclude this, the 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 throne from him. Why he shouldn't have been chosen. As a king, I mean, Saul really is the the proper choice. And I think it's interesting if you look at the timeline, too, there's a possibility that David actually could have known Ruth 
and he probably definitely knew Obed, Ruth's, Ruth's child. So that's an interesting thing to keep in mind hmm. that he he would have been that closely tied. I think we forget that because, you know, it's not mentioned in the text specifically. This is the first mention that we have of Bethlehem. Um, you know, we all know the stories um, from Christmas. We, we know this, where this town is and, and the significance of it for us as Christians. This is about 10 miles from Rama, which is Samuel's home. Mm-hmm. And it's not part of Samuel's normal circuit. It, it would be unusual for him to show up there. So that's going to become significant in a moment. Okay. And yeah, so, and God says, I have provided for myself a king. And the, the, the significance of this wording is, is lost in the English. Literally, what God says is, I have seen for myself a king. And so we're, we're back to sight language. And remember, Samuel, Samuel is a seer. Mm-hmm. And the, the words there are the same. Um, he, he, God says, he, ra'iti, he, ra'iti, I've seen for myself a king where Samuel is a roe. So what's important in this chapter, and this is going to be confirmed again, is God's vision, not Samuel's vision. We don't care about Samuel, Samuel's vision. It's, it's not the important thing. And we're going to see that, like I said, spelled out very, very emphatically when we get to the presentation of Jesse's sons. So, but the significance is, if you're looking at Samuel as being someone who has had his his vision called into question, even for himself, the, the reassurance here that your vision doesn't matter, this, this isn't discounting or trying to make Samuel feel bad. This is, this is you can rely on me. Mm-hmm. It, it's not about you. It really is about God. And I think one of the things... Um, it's really significant uh, that, that we forget is that, or that we may not be aware of. Uh, I'm trying to think of the right way to lead into this, and there really is no good way. Excuse us, Jackson is, is announcing his presence. Uh, the, uh, I was recently invited to uh, take part in a group that Doug Overmeyer runs with his CRC ministry and was able to take, place, take part of a conversation that's going on with other people who see in the spirit realm and to discuss that. And I know that one of the, the temptations for people who have this gift, and I, it does exist today, uh, there's multiple stories that confirm it, that one of the temptations is to try to rely on that gift mm-hmm. and to forget that, that total, complete dependence on God is necessary and that what we can see even you know the most fabulously gifted and the ones who have the most you know wildly successful and you know, verifiable demonstrations of that gift, it really doesn't matter because they are never going to see as well as God sees. And so mm-hmm. this is this is a good word for those who operate in that circle uh, of our faith. Hmm. So, yeah, it, it it's in there. You got to look for it. <laughs> Okay. No, I, I hadn't I hadn't considered that, but that makes sense. Well, like I said, I've been like marinating in these passages for weeks now. So, <laughs> but um, again, still withholding that name, and uh, and the the king is for God. God says, "I've seen a king for myself," and this is not a king to placate the masses. This is not a king that uh, is going to be like other nations. This is a king who is appointed and anointed because. This is the one God wants. And so I think 
that's going to come through uh, very clearly by the time we get to Samuel. So verse two, uh, Samuel's interaction with David. Anyway, verse two, Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears me, he will kill me. Uh, or Saul hears, he will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. This has caused all sorts of trouble for a lot of people because it's not the authorization of an outright lie, but it is instructions on how to successfully deceive Saul. Right. It's, and it seems so counter to everything we've been taught about God and how he deals with humanity. Well, and... I, I think we oversimplify how we think God deals with humanity. I mean, <laughs> in every you mean way. We, you mean when we create this nice little box that makes him easily defined and helps us understand how to uh, presume or press our will, will upon him? Uh, uh, yeah. Imagine that. that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it, I, what I think is interesting, too, because you mentioned that this is not part of his normal circuit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that. And so it's kind of interesting that he's saying, well, go tell him you're going to sacrifice because number one, it's not in the normal circuit. So it's like, well, how much attention has, has Saul been paying to what Samuel does? Exactly. Exactly. Well, if you know that God's going to take the king, kingdom away from you, the, the crown, then how, how better to thwart it than to kill the kingmaker? And so, I mean, Saul just really needs a great excuse. That's pretty much where he's waiting or what he's doing is waiting for an excuse to to take Sam, Samuel out because Samuel could and is the means of his demise. And so, yeah, it, it's very much, I, I think, apparent in the text that Samuel feels like Saul is watching him and Samuel is recognizing that this is a risky move. And... I think it also tells you something about Saul's expectations. I think he is looking for a king who's going to rise up and he's going to, to stage this rebellion and he's going to attack Saul. He's going to kill him. and He's going to violently take the kingdom from him. And that's not what happens. David never once tries to, to take control or take the kingdom from Saul. He, he waits for God's timing in that. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I see a parallel there because when we go forward to Christ, one of the things that was an expectation of the Messiah when Jesus was born was that he was going to be this military ru- ruler. He was going to come in and he was going to overthrow the Romans and everything was going to be great. And Jesus is like, no, nope, got a different plan. And sure. the, the things are going to play out as they're going to play out. And then whenever... The, the season for this rule and the dominion over the earth as it is, is out. Then I'll come back and take my place on the throne and I will be, assert myself as ruler of the earth. So we're going to see lots of parallels with how Jesus handles things and how David handles things. And, um, you know, I, I, they're pretty obvious, I think. So I, I feel comfortable saying that this is definite uh, use of a type, mm-hmm. which I usually try to avoid because uh, there's a tendency to reach too far and to prove these. Um, but again, we're going to, we're going to see some really, um, significant and defined clues that this is appropriate for, for David, at least in this, uh, aspect. So, uh, and because it is appropriate in this aspect, Samuel really kind of functions as John the Baptist 
within within the scenario. And he, you know, that's one of the things Samuel does. He he calls out people's sins, which what does John the Baptist do? He confronts Herod, says, hey, the way you're living is wrong. And mm-hmm. you know, eventually it cost him his head. And he urges repentance to all the people. And that's what Samuel has been doing with Saul all the way along. And, and of course, then we have the, the comparison of the anointing, uh, anointings, both with David and, and with Jesus. So Sam, Samuel is receiving from God a, um, a plan. He's getting a method that's going to allow him to keep his head, if we're going to draw on that parallel some more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in, in some ways it, to say, OK, well, it's not a lie, but it is deception. Seems like splitting hairs. But, you know, the rabbis really, they, they word it well and they, they defend the action well. That basically Samuel recognizes the threat and he understands that what he's doing is, is you know, possibly going to cost him his life. And instead of trying to box God into a corner that forces God to perform some kind of miracle in order to deliver him, Samuel says, how can we be wise about it? And he expects God to show his wisdom in this. And so it actually becomes an act of honor mm-hmm. and it becomes an act of faith. And I'm like, oh, I really like that. And I, I think that's it, it's a good thing. And so, um, you know, there, there's this idea that the that even within God's kingdom, there, there's this. There's this hiddenness about it. There, there's this concealment of true purpose and, and true intent until the, the appropriate time. And we also see this in the Gospels with the Messianic secret mm-hmm. when Jesus you know, tells different ones, go and tell no one. Keep your mouth shut. It's not the right time. And so in seeing this, um, even before Jesus and seeing it played out in the story of David, and I mean, it continues to be played out for, for quite a while, there is... Uh, again, one of those parallels that causes us to to stop and think, what ties David and Jesus together? Where do we divide those characters and uh, or people? Uh, characters is the wrong word, but you know it's written on a page, so sometimes I tend to use those words. Uh, sure. But the two individuals, what makes them different? But what can we learn and what can we anticipate? And this is part of God's revelation of Jesus as being hidden within the text and and. Dr. Heiser talks about that a lot and how, you know, if God had just laid out the game plan from the beginning, then how are things going to play out and what, what would Satan have done to, to thwart it? Yeah. I mean, which is basically a paraphrase of Paul where, you know, Paul says, had they had the powers that be knew what they were doing, that Mm -hmm. they wouldn't have killed the Lord of glory. You know, exactly. it, It makes sense. Precisely. And so, you know, this is where we have to trust God's methodology. And uh, I, I really, I think that's sometimes our hardest, our hardest thing to do as Christians is to say, okay, God really does know what he, what he's doing, even if I don't completely understand it. So, but Samuel does, he follows God's instructions. Verse three tells us they takes a, a heifer and he, he invites, um, invites Jesse to a sacrifice. Literally, this is a sacrificial uh, meal. It's a sacrificial feast is what he's specifically speaking of. Mm-hmm. and. Samuel does what God's told him to do. And God has told him, you know, anoint the one that I declare to you. Don't, don't pick anyone else. Listen to what I'm going to say. So verse four, Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem and the elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, do you come peaceful, peacefully? Do you come in Shalom? So 
Now, this is a curious one for me because okay. what it, you know, if you are supposed to be God's people and the prophet of the Lord comes to you, I mean, are, are they just are they worried that there's something that they've done wrong? I mean, what what is this that they're asking about coming in peace? Okay, so we got a couple of options here, and they're all great <laughs> because now remember Samuel. When he shows up, typically there's a few things that happen. A war breaks out, a judgment gets pronounced, or somebody gets hacked to pieces. Because King Aga, the, yeah, King Agag, uh, in the last chapter, that was how it closed. Samuel had hacked the king to pieces. I mean, it's a gruesome description of what he did. And sure. so this would have been fresh on the minds of the people. I mean, if Samuel can do this to a very important man in the care of Saul, What's he capable of doing against ordinary citizens? And what, what kind of judgment is he going to call down on their city? So mm -hmm. to remember, Samuel is fierce. I mean, we've been having all this behind the scenes. What's going on with Samuel emotionally? What is he thinking? What are his conversations with God? And his private life would not be on display to the nation. That's not how they deal with him. He, he's the outsider. When he shows up, I mean, he's showing up as a representative of God. So we actually know him better as a reader than the average citizen would. And the, the other thing to keep in mind is a passage in Deuteronomy 21. It's verses 1 through 9. I'm got, not going to read it. But basically, it is um, if a body is found outside the city, outside any of the cities, and there's no explanation, then the city that's closest is supposed to break, they have the elders of the city break the neck of a heifer as an atonement for the city. And so that what Samuel's arrival, particularly leading this heifer, is he could possibly be there to tell them, hey, you've got a murderer in your town and you need to oh, find okay. him to save. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I did not realize that. Uh, that's that was something that was new for me because I, I it, it never clicked to make that connection. And so, yeah, the, everything in context. Again, we don't have it specifically spelt out. So, I think keeping all of the possible um, conclusions in mind are, are very. It's very wise because when you do have this guy who just hacked this this king to death, and he's bringing possibly the news that you have a murderer in your midst and that you need to bring to justice so that your whole city isn't judged. Now you have a reason to be afraid and you can totally understand why they would be trembling. Sure. Yeah, and that, so that would make sense. That makes a whole lot of sense. Um, I, I did have a question. Is it also, um, mm -hmm. is also, does this also have any parallel to Matthew chapter two, verse three, when, uh, uh Hold on. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in Jerusalem along with him about the announcement of the new uh, of the new, of the Messiah. You know, there might be. I hadn't looked at that, but I would have to return to that one. We need to put that in our notes for a wrap up episode because I I had not even considered that. So could be. We'd uh, okay. just. I don't want to say either way until I until I actually spend some time looking at it. So, sure. but you know, what I, what I do love about this, um, this scene here in Samuel between Samuel and the, the elders 
number one, you know, he, he's operating on partial information. He doesn't know what's going on. There's a guy, some guy. He's the son of Jesse. Who knows how many sons Jesse has at this point? Um, and he's going to be king. And mm -hmm. yet Samuel goes out into this risky situation. And not only is he going out into this risky situation, he's going out in this risky situation as a man who's been crushed, as a man whose identity has been shaken. And mm -hmm. he's still being obedient i mean every excuse to 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 say no I, I can't do it god i failed you once i screwed up i i, I just no you, you you i can't rely on my own sight and you know you aren't even let me in on the whole plan why why should i go out and do this he's still acting he he's mm -hmm. still moving mm -hmm. and you know I, I love that and not only is he still acting and still moving when he approaches the city Despite all this inner turmoil that we know is going on, he's bossing around the city elders like it's another Tuesday morning. I right. mean, it's not even, there, there's no hint uh, of anything that's been going on with him personally, because now he's in that role of prophet. He's inhabiting that space and that part of his identity so fully. The rest of it, who cares? It's in the past. We're going to move forward. And, and we're going to to do what God has told us to do. And, you know, I think that's a really, again, great, another lesson for today. There's no excuse for disobedience. There's just not. Right. So verse five, he assures the, the elders, he's there peacefully, and he, and he commands them to consecrate themselves. And, you know, says, hey, let's have, have a, this feast, and we're going to offer a sacrifice to God. and then. It specifically says that Samuel consecrates Jesse and his son. So, so Samuel mm -hmm. overlooks this process, and he's being intimately involved. Now, we have no specific descriptions in Scripture of what that looks like. We, we, there's not like you know a checklist and numbers or someplace in Leviticus that says when you consecrate yourself, do these things. And the the principles even at this point for what that meant would have been, you know, looking at different narratives and looking at the different laws and going, okay, what, what do we glean out of all these passages and bring together so that we can understand what this means. And so one of the passages would have been Genesis 35. Another one would have been Exodus 19, 10 through 14. But while we look at them and how they've been enacted, we can kind of say, okay, here's the basics. First of all, you take a bath. You know, you, mm -hmm. if you're going to take a bath to go on a date, go take a bath before you go talk to God. Good idea. Um, putting on clean clothes. This is the reason why we dress up for church, guys. Um, it, it's not about trying to show off. It's because this is seen as honoring to the God that we're going to encounter. Uh, suspending sexual activity. And so during this time, you know, a few hours, possibly that day, big whoop, they, they don't have sex. And then they don't touch a dead body. So these these are acts of consecration. Now, one of the things I find interesting, this is another tradition. And again, tradition, not biblical, just something to help us possibly gain some insight. And we're okay with it being partial. Uh, there's this idea that the elder who spoke to Samuel actually was Jesse. And... Whenever he spoke to Samuel, then, you know, this would have given a great cover story for why Samuel went home with Jesse. So sure. possibility, not, you know, it doesn't really matter, but it does make a little bit of sense. Yeah. So 
verses six through through thirteen, um, they describe the the actual anointing process. And if you'll notice, there's no small talk. There, there's no build up. There's no lead up. Sam, Samuel is a man who's all business. And so I'm going to start with verse six. And it says, when they came, he looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Mm -hmm. So... Again, Samuel's sight is flawed, even though he's this great seer. He he has proven time and time again that he is, you know, he, he's good at his job. And and God has confirmed this. God, remember, God established all of his words. That's back in, I think, chapter two. So we have a reason to think that there's there's really nothing wrong with him as a seer, but his sight still isn't as good as God's. And mm -hmm. so uh, we don't. We we don't get told a lot about Eliab other than he is he's tall. And sure. you know, the the well and what was the, the distinguishing characteristic of Saul? He's tall. And so in choosing right. Eli Eliab, it, it's kinda like it would be like choosing Saul all over again. So well, and it would make sense that if you're going to choose someone to replace the king, and especially not knowing exactly how that's all going to take place, assuming probably mm -hmm. that there's going to be a conflict, then maybe <laughs> they might want somebody who can uh, intimidate Saul. Right, right. Well, and that's it. It makes total sense. I mean, if you look at this from, from a Samuel's perspective, any, you know, halfway sane um, human being's perspective, he makes sense. But God says, I've rejected him. So then in verse 8, we're introduced to Abinadab. Again, rejected. Verse 9, Shama, rejected. Verse 10, we're told that the seven sons of Jesse are rejected. And the seven includes the um, three that are named, mm -hmm. but it also includes four more. And right. so we, we've got some interesting things that are going to go on here. Because biblically, the idea of seven sons is is perfect. That, that this is mm -hmm. the ideal number. Job one two, uh, Job forty two and thirteen. Ruth, when she gives birth um, to Obed, she's praised as being better to Naomi than seven sons. But the problem is, it contradicts First Chronicles two fifteen, where David is identified as the seventh son and implies that Jesse has eight sons. So now we got. This thing where, okay, wait a minute, the Bible's contradicting itself, and we can't have that because this means people are going to lose all their faith. Let's let's just address it dead on. So first of all, epics from this time, uh, often whenever there's a situation like this, they'll name the first three sons and then give you the four remaining sons as kind of a summary. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is, this is part of an epic writing. So we're, we've got this indicator that we need to be paying attention to what's going on in the epic stories of its time to see how this literary device is being used. And by the way, this isn't just in this, these two passages. We um, find the, the interplay between eight and seven in a couple of other places in the Bible. Micah 5.5 5 says, when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, we shall raise up against him seven princes, uh, sorry, seven shepherds and eight princes of men. So you've got that, um, You've got that play again, seven and eight. 
Mm-hmm. Revelation 17:11 says as for the beast that is not it is the eighth but it belongs to the seven. Now that's kind of an interesting um statement there because what in the world could it possibly mean? So when we go back to the Ugaritic epics and their poems what we find is the same use of the number 7 and 8. And um one quote I just pulled one cuz I know not everybody wants to hear Ugaritic poetry. Uh, the house of the king was destroyed, the house which had seven brothers, yea, eight sons of one mother. So one of the options for explaining this is that, yes, David was, had eight brothers, but Jesse had seven sons. So an example, my husband is the oldest of seven sons. His dad has seven sons, but he has eight brothers. And the reason why he has eight brothers is because his mother had a son with a with a different man. Okay. So this this could be what's going on here is that yes, Jesse had seven sons, but if his wife had his child from another marriage, then David had eight brothers. So that makes sense. The okay. um but the other thing, which I actually, I lean more towards this explanation because we do have those Ugaritics parallels, that basically seven is the maximum. Excuse me, the dog is getting involved in things. Um, seven is the maximum. Uh, it's the maximum number of blessing. It's the bless, maximum number of cursing. And so when you've got the maximum and then you make this reference to eight, it's just a little extra. It, it's the ancient equivalent of it goes to 11. Well, so. I, I, my, well, my thought was that, you know, the seven being um, just kind of a common like idiom for every one of your children. Complete. Yeah. yeah. Completeness. Yeah. Well, and the, the, there is that. But if you've got that eight thrown in, now you got, like I said, that's something extra. And it fits David so well because he's always a little something extra. Hmm. I mean, he never does anything halfway. And, and you know, and he's the outsider. He, he's that, that piece that doesn't really belong in the community, even though he's part of the community. He, he, he's just kind of on the fringe. And David's character is one that when you look at him, he he's not just a part of the complete whole. He 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 extends beyond it. There's something in him that has an intimate, deep connection to something that exceeds societal expectations. And this has you know leads to a lot of conflict and a lot of problems in his life. And you know, in Samuel, the whole book is about the outsider. Mm-hmm. That that's one of the themes. If you remember back to our, to our conversations about Hannah, and you know, it's the outsider who brings life giving change to an established system. You know, Hannah, the childless woman, you can't be any more of an outsider in that culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, Samuel, who is priest, prophet, and judge, also an outsider, little extra in everything he does. Mm-hmm. And when you you look at these outsiders, they're, they're the role is to evoke, but it's also to provoke change. They, mm-hmm. they, there's no, there's no middle ground with them. They, they, they're always over the top. And so, when you look at the way in the Ugaritic poems, we, we see that seven eight connection. We're always talking about something that's over the top. And so, when, even when we look at Micah five five and the, this judgment against Assyria, then over the top, it's complete. 
but it's beyond complete. It's just a little more. And mm-hmm. so I, I think that's really, um, I think that's really kind of what's being uh, conveyed with these numbers in, in David's story. So, and, it, and it's interesting when you look at verse 11, because what Samuel asked Jesse is, are your sons complete? Well, and another thought, um, here's something that, this just occurred to me, there may not be any validity to this, but as you were going through all that, um, is it possible that um, it was to say that David was the eighth son, to say that God provided his own king, but still left Jesse with a complete household? That is, that's also very possible. That that it that very well could be, and I would have to look more and see if there's. I mean, we are going to find that in text. That's going to have to be some kind of outside tradition that sure. that would build on the text, um, which might exceed my my research capabilities, honestly. But um, well, yeah, you got fifty some odd pages of notes on this chapter, so you know, I think we yeah. I think we're covering enough, right? <laughs> yeah, you'll get fifty seven. Uh, yeah, so yeah, we. we it, it goes past 11. So, uh, but I do, I, I, I did find it interesting that within that concept of seven being the completeness that, that Samuel makes it a point to use that word, are, are your sons complete? And, or all your boys, he, he specifically asked about a boy, not about, you know, just a son or an offspring. He's looking for a, a very young person. Mm-hmm. And Jesse responds. And in the ESV says, there remains yet the youngest. And at, literally what that, the Hebrew says the littlest. So again, that great contrast between Saul and, and David. And we know that David is significantly smaller than Saul because, you know, we're, we're going to get into the story of Goliath before too long. Right. And Saul's armor's too big. So yeah, David, he, he's on polar opposite ends of the, um, of the spectrum from Saul on so many levels. And when Jesse speaks, he says, behold, you know, back to sight language, he is keeping the sheep. So again, that 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 contrast. He's not out wandering around for three days, wondering where in the world the donkey's got to. He, he's keeping the sheep. And so Samuel has Jesse send for David, and he he tells him, you know, hey, we're, we aren't going to feast until he gets here. We have to wait. And so he makes everybody wait until David gets there. And you know, in some ways, we should be expecting David to be the one who's chosen. Because this is a consistent biblical theme, you know, Jacob over Esau, Ephraim over Manasseh, the the younger son in favor of the older son. Mm -hmm. And that's God showing, I'm going to choose who I want, not who man would honor, but who, who I would honor. And so we're, we're also seeing this position of David as an outsider being highlighted. I mean, he's the youngest, he's the littlest. He, he's not even worthy of being given an invitation to the feast. Yeah, he's and not, this he's not just, even at the party where one of his brothers is thought to be the one who is going to be chosen. Exactly. I mean, exactly. you want to talk about being left out, there it is. <laughs> and that's the thing, that the text is really the, driving home the point that David is is not who you want. And you, you need to keep that in mind because that's going to be important. Um, and I think it's very interesting too. David was not there when Jesse, I'm oh, sorry, when Samuel consecrated Jesse and the sons. Jesse, David hasn't, he hasn't bathed. He hasn't changed his clothes. He hasn't, you know, done all the things that were expected of his brothers. And I was wondering about that though, because he wasn't among those who were, who were clean. So Samuel tells them to go get him. 
So does everyone have mm-hmm. to sit and wait while he goes and takes a bath and cleans up and goes through the process and everyone just gets to sit there and look there, look at each other very, very <laughs> awkwardly for a while? <laughs> well, and there's no indication that happens. It, 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 it's like he shows up and we get to the end of the, the chapter. It's like, not the end of the chapter, the end of the section. He shows up and God says, get up and do it and anoint him. He's the mm-hmm. one I've chosen. So David is even outside the obligations that Samuel has tried to impose on the future king. Hmm. From, and Which is, again, opposite from, from Saul. Because remember, when Saul was anointed, what happened, Samuel said, you need to go to this place and go do that. And he gave him a list of things that he was supposed to do and places he was supposed to go. And Saul did it and God showed up and that was great. But the problem is with, with David, none of that happens. Mm -hmm. It Mm -hmm. is all about, um, you know, Samuel's going to be, um, uh, Dave, sorry, David, you take him as you get him. Yeah. You, you don't, you don't get to meddle with him. Mm -hmm. And so there's this, again, that great, that great contrast. And so. Well, and I do, I, I, I mean, I, I do wonder also if this kind of has uh, some kind of implication of like this picture of, of salvation too, where everyone here is, you know, we're going to get consecrated and washed up. But whenever uh, they find David, if even if he didn't have to go through all the process, it was just like immediately saw him. Then the Lord's like, get up and anoint him now. They just kind mm-hmm. of God taking us as we are and making yes. us into uh, what he wants us to be. Um, I, I don't know if there's any kind of parallel or, or imagery there that we're supposed to be following. I, I, I didn't go into that and I really didn't pick up on it, but I think, no, I, I think you're right. I, and, you know, I think that no matter how much we dress up and how much we, we do quote unquote, the right religious thing that there is um, this point where it, it's not enough. It's not going to be what qualifies us to be chosen by God. Mm-hmm. And I, so, no, I, I think that you're onto a good thing because, I mean, I think we could parallel this with David, not David, Jesus and his interactions with the Pharisees. Sure. And, you know, the fact that, hey, we, we follow all the, role, all the laws. We do the right thing. We, we, we make sure that we're representing God well. But God's saying, until you actually have a heart after mine, you don't qualify. Sure. So, and, and I, I love that because I mean, seriously, what, what better um, qualification could we ask for? So verse 12, and he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and he was handsome. And the Lord said, arise and anoint, anoint him for this is he. So, uh, you know, like I said, no record of the consecration process, but this, this verse should kind of stop us dead in our tracks. Because we began this chapter with being told that don't look on the outward appearance. And then we have this whole list of, of physical features that make David attractive. Mm-hmm. And it, it's, kind of, it's kind of funny because it's like our expectations that the writer himself set up have just been completely dashed. And mm-hmm. I'm just like, when I read this, it, it, it made me stop and pause. And so I, I, I kind of broke it down. So, well, of course I, I did break it down. I didn't kind of do it. I had to, cause I can't help myself. <laughs> uh, he's, he's ruddy. He's red. Now there's only one other person in the Bible that's described as ruddy or red. And 
that's Esau. And we just dealt with Esau in the last chapter because he's the father of the Amalekites. Sure. And so he is, we, we've got this callback, but we, if we weren't paying attention, we didn't realize we were dealing with Esau from the very beginning. And when, you know, Esau's curse, and this is in Genesis twenty-seven forty, is to live and die by the sword. And really that becomes David's curse. Mm-hmm. And it, this is a hint at what David's fate's going to be, but it also, it, it, it's a foreshadowing of what David's life is going to look like. And we need to remember that this, this life that David have, it has is so bloody. It, it, it's so violent that God says, you don't even get to build my house. I, I can't have you build my house. Right. Jackson. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but Jack Jackson's the Chowini. Is that what he is? Yeah. He, I know you can't see me, Nathan, but he's actually sitting on the couch behind me. So, okay, so everybody's so for getting... anyone on YouTube will know what it is, but for our <laughs> podcast listeners, she's referred to Jackson. Jackson's the dog. My husband's dog. Let's make that clear. <laughs> <laughs> I like big dogs. So we've got this little thing and highly demanding, but anyway, but the other thing about uh, comparing David to Esau is to remind us that David is going to be a worthy appoint, uh, opponent for those who are trying to oppress Israel. Uh, because Saul, Esau and his descendants were great warriors. Sure. And sometimes that's exactly what you need. Uh, he has beautiful eyes. Now, I immediately thought of um, Leah because of her soft eyes, which are not beautiful, but there's a contrast there. And it, But it connects David also to Rachel and Joseph, two of the most significant people disca- uh, described as being beautiful. And we're going to find there's going to be several connections between David and Joseph, which is interesting that David, the king of Israel, should have connections to Joseph, who is second in command in a completely foreign country. So uh, once again, those outsider themes are kind of being played up and they're being done very well. Uh, He is handsome. Uh, Literally the Hebrew there, he is good to see. So we're back to sight language, but we also have that word tov, uh, good. Uh, that's going to be important and because in the sorry guys uh, (laughs) within this passage we have the three words that connect us back to Genesis 6 and that see the good and and Mm -hmm. we also have take and so those three words which take us to Genesis 6 and take us to Genesis 3 and we see this reversal of how God uses sometimes it's okay to take the good thing if we are aligning our sight with God's if we're seeing what God is seeing then taking what is good is actually it's honorable it's right it's appropriate but you have to be looking through through um, God's eyes well yeah and you have to be you have to be taking it with the right reasons you have to be taking it to mm -hmm. give to God and not be taking it for yourself Precisely. And and I think this really clues us in on the magnitude of what God's doing whenever he's referring back to Genesis 3 and Genesis 6. Oh, my goodness. These are two of the three events that the only two of the three events that impacted the entire world as it was known. And so mm-hmm. when when pulling these events together in the life of David, what we're really seeing is God's getting ready to do something so major that the entire world is going to be changed again. Uh, it's going to take a few thousand years. And 
we're going to have to take a little break so I can let Jackson out because I keep hearing him squeal. So we were saying that when we take things the right way to God, that's a good thing. Yeah, when when we take what God has literally provided for us, and that's the thing, David is being provided by God for the nation. This isn't the nation saying, we're going to take whatever we want, and we want to mm-hmm. get our way. This is this is receiving God's gifts versus taking what we shouldn't, which, would, you know, that's, that's Saul's problem as a person. Uh, not only was he appointed whenever, out of a sense of, we deserve this and we want this, then Saul mm-hmm. turns around and he embodies that very concept in taking... The, oh, the yeah. best from the Amalekites. And, you know, that's, there's some really deep things that you can play with in there and the idea of how do we embody who we are, but how do we embody what other people expect us to be? And do other people's expectations have any impact on how we live our lives? And so, I, you know, I, there, that's a probably way too much psychology for our show, but th- I think there's something to it. So, <laughs> and, and so later on, what we're going to wind up with is uh, you know, Saul's going to see David and he's going to see that David's good and mm-hmm. he's going to take him into his house. And what Saul doesn't realize is that this is going to be his undoing and it will be Saul's final act in the manner of acting as a son of God. And we discussed that when we introduced Saul, that he very much fills the bill as one of the sons of God and all the connections there. So I'm not going to go over that. But the the one who is taken by the king will be given the kingdom. Mm. And I, I like, wow, that, you know, there that will preach. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> and I, I, I find it interesting. And I know we'll probably get more into this again, uh, But I find it really interesting that after David is anointed to take over the kingship, that he winds up going and working in the in Saul's house, and so in the end of the same uh, chapter. Yeah, yeah. Later in this chapter, yeah. And and but what we have is we have God taking David to the palace. I don't know if it's palace or house or exactly what Saul's living in at this point, because I know it. Probably is not like a grand, majestic palace like we would think of when we think <laughs> right? of kings. But uh, God's putting David in a place to learn what he needs to learn. Mm-hmm. And I think that's just a really uh, a very interesting way of going about uh, getting David shaped into the man that he needs to be later on. He prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it, it's it's trusting the process. And I think that's one of the really big things that David has to teach us. He trusts the process for so long. He trusts the process when he's on the run, hiding in caves, and he's still saying, I will trust and I will obey. And so, uh, it, which is, you know, fitting because, you know, David's going to take Samuel's place as the outsider. Mm-hmm. of this book. And so both outsiders really they they are constantly putting themselves in danger in harm's way just out of obedience. They're not being stupid and they're not being ridiculous. They they're just being obedient. And so and the people who would not be threatened by obedience at all are the ones who are constantly disobeying. And so we've got that great contrast going on there. And what I think is easily overlooked in this passage. Samuel hesitates. He 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 knows it's the last son. He knows it's the only one. And instead of rushing up to meet him and going, okay, yeah, I'm going to anoint this guy. 
you know, kind of like he did with Eliab. Um, David takes him off guard. He, he's not expecting what God presents to him. And, and you know, in the person of David, there, there's so much more there. And remember, Samuel's a seer. So when he's looking, he is looking not just at the outward appearance, but he is seeing more than that. And and I think, you know, total speculation here. Okay, I want to be very clear about this. This is total, total speculation. Um, I think this is him operating in that gifting as a seer. And I think he saw how dangerous this boy is. And I think he understood that this was going to be the warrior king par excellence. I mean, the, the ancient world knew nothing, uh, no other king that was so impressive in his ability to, to wage war as David. I mean, Alexander the Great might come close, but he's, you know, David is way, way before that. Mm-hmm. And Samuel, above all others, he, he has reason to understand and recognize David for who he is. Why? Because Samuel is the outsider. He, he was, Samuel was the one who destroyed the status quo in his lifetime. David's going to do the same thing. They're both men of violent action. And, and to be really blunt, they're both killers. And, yeah. well, and, and something else I think is kind of interesting. I don't know if, if you were going to get to this, mm-hmm. but I, I think it is interesting that as they, you know, in, when Saul's, Saul's anointing, uh, that, they were looking around and they were casting lots to try to figure out who it was, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is kind of yeah. funny because Samuel is there and he should have known, you know. Right. But then you get to David and they're not casting lots. He's like, no, I'm looking for someone specific. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. This is who God's told me, who he's mm-hmm. decreed. This is the one. And, and again, we, we were back to those, those contrasts between David and Saul. And we really see how this is God's design and God's plan. This is not something that Samuel fabricated. This is not something that makes a lot of sense, uh, especially at the beginning, if we are not taking God into account with the story. And so that that's the, the really cool part about this. The story is that God is so hands-on with David in a way that he really wasn't with Saul. And, you know, we, we, we can ask all the questions about why that is. Did God know that Saul was going to fail? Did God not care? Did God just, you know, fine, here, have the king you want? Uh, well, was, was Samuel <laughs> hoping that God would change his mind? We cast lots this time so I can make sure this is the one you really want. <laughs> well, yeah, no, but that's a really good point because, you know, I do think Samuel's faith was kind of shaken with the whole Saul incident. And yet even Samuel had had multiple confirmations because Saul was recognized as the proper king at least three times mm-hmm, there's the mm-hmm. private anointing there's the casting of the lots and then once again after the 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 battle with the uh ammonites and so three times we, we have this recognition of of saul as king and we're going to have a couple of recognitions with david and we're going to have again that uh, i believe it's three times that david is introduced to saul and each time saul's kind of like who are you Right. Uh, so uh, that I think there's something going on there with with that, which is going to be interesting to explore. So, but anyhow, we'll we'll wrap up this uh, little section here because verse 13 tells us Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So much in this verse; it's a great verse. Yeah, it really stood <laughs> well, out to me. I, I, oh, it's it's 
yeah. <laughs> when I can't talk, that means I'm just getting excited. Um, so Samuel anoints David with the oil. Um, he's anointing him as a means of activation. This is very common in the ancient world. You you anoint something you want to work, that you want to have contact with its spiritual realm. Uh, sacred stones are anointed. Sacred instruments, like musical instruments, are anointed. And, of course, sacred people. And the the point of all of this is... By activating them, now God can speak through them. Before this yeah. activation, they're, they're just, you know, they're stones. They're, they're, they're musical instruments. They're, they're people. It, it, they aren't, there's nothing special. But this anointing is, is supposed to be the ritual by which things are activated. And this is not, um, this is not, what am I trying to say? Israel's not the only one who does this. They, okay. they it's not are exclusive to Israel. Thank you. That's the word I was looking for. Uh, yeah, it, it, that's the thing. It, it is something that is practiced throughout all the ancient Near Eastern world. It's God using the language of the people uh, that the people understood and could connect with. It, it wasn't scary for them or, or you know, something they're like, what is he doing? That they, they would have gotten it immediately. Sure. And so, and that's exactly God honors this language that's being used because the Spirit of the Lord rushes upon David and is with him from that day forward. Now, notice we finally have a name. We have this great mm-hmm. unveiling. Before this, David's name has never been mentioned, even though we know that's who he's talking about. And we kind of fill that in when we see Son of Jesse or the man after God's own heart. Finally, the writer gives us his name. And it's a really unique name. Nobody else in the Bible has it, unlike a lot of other names. And so it's caused a lot of debate about exactly what it means. Uh, I'm not going to go into it because it's all speculation. The most, you know, most accepted is beloved. Okay. And so there's also like uncle and some other ones. Uh, it doesn't matter. David, he, he, he's, he's the one that God's chosen. And again, the, the, the main point of him having a different name and not having a common name, he's the outsider. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and this, this, acceptance by god the this spirit of the lord rushing in upon him it, it's evidenced because everybody loves him it, it, we're going to have so many people who love david and it's always the same language it's always the same words in hebrew everybody loves david david uh he wins his battles he's got great wisdom he receives divine guidance and protection and he prophesies and i think we also forget that he he is a prophet uh he's mm-hmm. not recognized as a prophet in the Hebrew text, he's not called by that name. But when we look at the Psalms, there's no way to get around the fact that those are prophetic Psalms. Absolutely. And David writes several of them. So therefore, he is a prophet. And we're actually, we got some, well, I want to offer more evidence when we get further into this chapter. Um, and this, this shared role, again, we go back to the thematic, one of the thematic elements of the book of Samuel. It's where do you delineate? How, how do you define that, that role uh, between prophet, priest, king, and judge? Yeah. Where, where do you make that division? And can you inhabit one of these roles and not inhabit the other? And, and you really get that, that understanding when you really study this book that we need somebody who can do all of it. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. where Saul got in trouble so often is when he tried to step into Samuel's role. When he forgot right. that he's not a prophet, he wasn't a priest. And so to have a king who can embody all these things and can f- fulfill all these functions is the only way the kingdom is not going to be fragmented and split. Hmm. And so, of course, you know, 
we're going to see um, in in Jesus that he does fulfill all of these roles. Yeah. And so the, the it's just great stuff when you start really thinking about this. Oh yeah, Being... it, it, it's incredible. <laughs> Oh, it really is. So I want to get through this last verse and then we'll we'll call it a a, a break right there. But there's a couple more things I want to point out. So David is anointed uh, king in strict accordance to Deuteronomy 17, 14 and 20. Remember when Samuel anointed Saul, he even sent the servant away. There was nobody there at the first anointing. It was just Samuel and Saul together. But in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, we find out that the king is supposed to be anointed in the midst of his brothers. And so literally, that is exactly what happens with David. He's anointed in the midst of his brothers. And so the the beauty of this, and, and Brueggemann really picks up on this, is that as the misfit, as the outsider, David is the confirmation that the outsider is always within the kingdom going to be elevated above the people who who fit. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Jesus, Jesus says this over and over again, you know, the first will be last, you know, if you wish to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to serve. It's always those reversals. It's continuous um, reversal and it's never what people expect. So just like something that you don't expect, Samuel actually returns to Rama. He doesn't attempt to keep tabs on David. He doesn't attempt to um, try to offer him any kind of guidance or wisdom. He does it and, and he leaves. But and you, you kind of have to ask why this happened. Is it because Samuel knows David just doesn't need him? Uh, you know, There's no way David would have put up with Samuel's uh, meddling the same way Saul put up with Samuel's meddling. Sure. And you know, so David doesn't need him. David wouldn't have him. Or, or maybe Samuel just felt it was better to keep his distance. And I know there are some people in my life, some really great Christians and, and very wonderful spiritual people. Our personalities just don't need to play together much. We respect <laughs> each other. We love each other. But we we know we need to go to our own corners and do our work there. <laughs> so Fair enough. I I have to wonder about that. And you know, and notice there's no signs of confirmation. Um, you know, there, there's none. Where Saul had to go through that whole progression. And really, this is the last time that, um, well, it's not the last time. It's one of the few times. There's two times that, that Samuel and David interact. And from here, it's going to be all the way to chapter 19, the, the end of that chapter that David and Samuel interact again, they don't, they don't talk. They're, they're not best beds. And, um, you know, it, it's, it's a wonderful story. And I think I'm going to hold off on going into to that because we, it's going to be, it, it's going to kick us way, way over time. Yeah, but, yeah. So we're, we're already a little over as it is. So Yeah, yeah. So we're going to hold off. But yeah, so you, you were beginning to see how chapter 16 is great. Uh, the, the, as we move forward, uh, there's so much more. Uh, one final point. Uh, it's very important that the Bible actually makes that specific observation. The Spirit of the Lord was with David from that day forward. Because if you remember Saul... Samuel has left him symbolically 
indicating that the spirit of the Lord has departed. And as we move forward into the next section, which is the section that throws everybody for a loop, where the evil spirit from the Lord torments Saul. Oh, we're, yeah. We're we're told, that's going to be a whole lot of fun to talk about. Uh, oh, yeah. But we're told that the reason why that can happen is because the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul because now it's with David. Mm-hmm. And so this this setup. So even though you've got that break in your Bible and we're having to break our episodes right here. The story isn't broken, so sure. it should be read. It should be read continuously. So hang on to this story before you move into the next story and uh, you're going to appreciate it much better so awesome i think that's all i have to say okay well i don't have anything to add to that other than uh (laughs) that was a lot of fun so hopefully everyone out there had fun uh listening to us uh chat about this Uh, (laughs) if you enjoyed what you heard and you want to be part of the conversation influence what we're doing um or you know make suggestions anyway i don't know how much influence (laughs) we're going to give to everyone you know but uh be part of the conversation, Raven Creek SC on all the social media and uh, hit us up on uh, ravencreeksc.com uh, where you can mm-hmm. find show notes um, and our other shows, uh, Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington and um, The Commentarians with Joe Zaragoza and sometimes me and Emily. We're on there sometimes. Mm-hmm. But um, in the meantime, yeah, hit us up, be part of the conversation and we will see you mm-hmm. next week. Thanks. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.